What's up everyone? This is Gwen. This is JV. This is Chapoy aka DJ Shrimp and you're listening to Millionaire 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 Interviews. Interviews. Hey, what's up? Yeah, just grinding. How about you? Yeah, I'm checking Jetra's work. How about you? Nice. Yeah, just grinding, just grinding here. Oh, it's Austin. Hey. Oh, is that Quinn? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, tell Quinn I say hey. Yeah, Austin says hi. Sorry, yeah, I forgot. What uh, episode are you working on again? Yeah, I'm trying to uh, finish Barbecue King. Uh, it's a really good one. Yeah. Yeah, dude, I, that was, I really liked that episode too. Um, yeah, but yeah, do you got a minute to talk? Mm, yeah. Okay, what's up? Yeah, so yeah, it's regarding the Patreon. So good news is we got a three Patreons uh, this week. Oh, really? That's nice. <laughs> I never thought of yeah, that. Right. So, yeah. So that's a good part. I mean, um, but now I got some kind of bad news that we kind of discussed a little while ago. Mm. Yeah. So I mean, it's like so. Remember our goals like fifty Patreon members by August. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I just want to give you a head. Get, yeah, give you a heads up. I'm not sure if we're going to actually reach it. Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's why I wanted to let you know, you know, so uh, I guess, yeah, you remember what we, what I said was going to happen, man, if we didn't reach our Patreon goal? Yeah, you're going to have to let my wife go? Is that it? Yeah, I mean, we're just like under break even right now, and that's without me paying myself, so unless we get like five more Patreon members or so over the next two weeks, then uh, we're going to have to make cuts, man. I'm sorry. Oh, I guess this is a bad time to tell you that I just found out that, you know, Quinn is pregnant. I say there are five things in your life you can do, right? So you've got work, you've got your relationship, right? Or your family, let's call it. You've got your friends, you've got your health, and you've got your sleep. Those are the five things in your life, right? That pretty much everything falls into one of those buckets. The problem is, is that when you're an entrepreneur, you generally can only do three of them. And so you have to make a conscious choice, right? What are the things that you're going to give up? funny my dad had called him before we had lunch and said dan look jordan's gonna have lunch and he's thinking about going to the wine industry just do one thing don't let him do it i'm sure you've heard this from other entrepreneurs you've talked to especially at first companies a lot of people i remember you know when i announced that i was leaving i had all my employees and we're in this giant production facility here in sonoma that we built i'm looking around and i said look you guys are my greatest professional accomplishment that's an amazing sense of pride that comes from that and so if you're willing to go for it my name is jordan kivelstadt i live in sonoma california and i am the founder of free flow wines and free flow is the company leading the national revolution of wine on tap so for the last 10 years we've been changing the way people drink wine and it started with kegs we started as a brand called silver tap and we launched the first national premium wine on tap and after a couple of years we morphed into what people noted as free flow backing the entire wine on tap industry and really helping people get a better glass of wine in a more sustainable fashion. A couple of years ago, we took it one step further and started canning wine. So I joke today that I'm known as the guy that makes wine in metal packages as opposed to just the keg wine guy. It's been a lot of fun. So 10 years in, we're actually celebrating our 10th anniversary in July. We've grown a lot and it's been really amazing to watch. And how old are you? 37. Have you always been a wine connoisseur? 
you know, I grew up around it, but I wouldn't say a connoisseur. You know, everyone in the wine industry has this moment when they fall in love with wine. And mine was actually in college. I'd actually gone to France with my parents on vacation and we'd gone touring wineries in Burgundy. And I remember I bought a bottle of white Burgundy in the random cellar of some winery we visited. I brought it home and was saving it. And I was with a bunch of my friends from college and we were celebrating and we opened this bottle of wine and it was just a transformative experience. I remember tasting it going, oh my God, I did didn't know wine could taste like this. It put the bug in me and I didn't go straight into wine, but eventually I came back to finding a career in the wine industry. Were you the first person to put wine on tap in a can as well? No, I don't think I'm the first. I know I'm not. It started actually in the 70s with Anheuser-Busch, but uh, kegs used to be called bung kegs. They looked more like what we think of as a barrel, but they were made out of metal and they had a hole in the side. That's how we used to do kegs. And then the 70s, Anheuser-Busch developed, we know today as the modern keg with that, uh, it's called a Sankey fitting on top, that little ball valve on the top of the keg. They developed that and had to retire this giant fleet. I mean, we're talking 2 million of these old bung kegs and they couldn't figure out what to do with them. So they owned all the bars. And they said, well, let's just start serving wine. So they actually put the first wine in keg in the 70s. It was called Master Cellars. And it didn't go very well. It lasted about five years and failed. And then the 80s, Inglenook and Paul Masson tried to pick up on that, you know, offer hearty burgundy. It was actually like out of the soda gun at the bars. And then it basically died. And in the 90s and early 2000s, there was nobody doing it. And then a couple of companies tried it, mids as they're called now, but nobody really did it successfully. And then Free Flow and another company called Gotham Project out of New York really started the modern premium wine on tap movement in 2009. I guess even right now, maybe this sounds pretty interesting to people. So if they wanted to visit your website, what's the website? Freeflowwines.com. But I'd encourage people who are interested to go to trywineontap.com, which is a website that we have that's much more consumer focused. Freeflow is really a business to business company at this point. So our website's much more tailored to our service offerings to wineries. Trywineontap.com has tons of information about why and where to find wine on tap and all the wineries that are involved. It's much more consumer facing. And you're in Sonoma, California? We are. Okay. Strategically, is that, I mean, if you weren't there, would it be much more difficult? I think most people listening might know, but in case they don't, isn't that basically wine country where you're located? Yeah, I have the pleasure of living in wine country. Most people know the Napa Valley, that Napa has almost universal name recognition. Sonoma Valley is literally next door. So we're in Sonoma, which is in the heart of Northern California wine country. We're basically halfway between Washington, Oregon and Southern California. So we can take in wines from all over the West Coast of the US. And in fact, we have wine shipped to us from all over the world. Now, in order to facilitate European wines, we actually have a facility in Bayonne, New Jersey as well. So we're kegging all of our European wines out of Bayonne, New Jersey, and then all of our West Coast U.S. wines, Australia, New Zealand, Argentina, Chile, predominantly out of the West Coast. And I guess even being there, was there any issues with fires? I knew there were some fires in California somewhat recently, but how about in the vineyards there? Yeah, no, thanks for asking. Two years ago, it was pretty gruesome here in Sonoma County and Napa County. I mean, we had massive fires. In fact, my family owns a 10-acre vineyard. We lost five acres of our vineyard in the fire, and my parents' house almost burned to the ground. It was a really trying time for everybody. We lost about 10,000 structures, about 5,000 homes in Sonoma County. It's been a challenge to rebuild. But one of the amazing things about living in a smaller community is watching the community come together through the actual fires themselves and then in the aftermath. If you came today, if you didn't know 
you wouldn't even know it was there. You see all the rebuilding, you see this incredible thriving community. And as you look in the mountains and the hills, Sonoma is just as beautiful as it's always been and is recovering unbelievably well. Well, why don't we like talk about that for a few minutes? Because again, this is something that maybe you don't think about in business, these types of disasters actually happening. So I imagine they obviously had like insurance, but trying to get money to deal with that and rebuild and everything. Can you just give us more details about that? Sure. So it was a really trying time for all of us. I want to break it into two separate conversations. The first one is the business and the second is more for the people of where we are. So Free Flow at the time was actually based in Napa, our facility. We moved to Sonoma January 1st of this year. So we were in Southern Napa and the fires got to about a quarter mile from our facility. For a week, I actually had to basically shut work down. The smoke was so bad. I was concerned about my employees getting to and from the office. And obviously many of them living around there had concerns about their families and everything else. So for a week, we were worried that the fires might actually get to our building and burn our business to the ground, not to mention obviously impact all of our employees. So we went through the process of shutting down and checking on everybody. And as you can imagine, the entire economy and valley was in total disarray. When it was all over, we filed a business interruption insurance claim and our insurance company was unbelievably good to us about it. They didn't fight us at all. Now the claim wasn't huge compared to some of the businesses, obviously that must've had much bigger numbers, but we were able to cover all of our operating costs through the business insurance, business interruption claim during that period. And we're made reasonably whole. So we were very, very lucky in that way. On the flip side to it, I also own a winery called Kibblestadt Stellars. It's about 6,000 case, New California winery. Uh, When I say New California, I mean stylistically in the wines we make. And it's based in Glen Ellen. Glen Ellen was unbelievably hard hit by the fire. It burned right up to about 800 feet away from where our tasting room is located and lost 50 or 80 homes. And so I actually hosted about two, three weeks after the fire. So Glenelg wasn't even open for two weeks. They still had it shut down as they were trying to clean up the aftermath. So when we finally got in there, one of the first things I did was I got together one of my insurance brokers, a lawyer, one of the FEMA representatives. I basically went and looked and I said, okay, what are all the people that impact the future as we move forward? And then I opened it up to all of the people who'd lost their homes and said, hey, come and ask all the questions you want to know. And so we actually held a three-hour town hall. About 35, 40 people showed up. I had seven different representatives from various government and related agencies. And it was the most incredible thing. So we started and I was emceeing the event and said, hey, I want to thank everyone for coming out. I know this has been a really trying time. How many people in this room lost some part or all of their home? And every single person in the room raised their hand. And so we proceeded to have this very intense three-hour conversation. I mean, people said it was so helpful because they were struggling to figure out who to talk to and who to ask these questions. So really amazing experience. And that's why I said it comes back to community, right? Watching the whole community come together and support each other as we rebuild. You're able to do that in one of your warehouses, bring everyone together to have this kind of town hall. I guess even the infrastructure as far as electricity, obviously like internet and stuff and trying to figure out who to talk to, it's pretty difficult if you can't have one location for everyone to meet up and kind of figure it out. Correct. I did it actually in my tasting room for my winery, which was right in quote unquote downtown Glen Ellen. We had electricity at that point and it just gave people the opportunity to come and ask a lot of questions that have been on their mind. 
we can jump back to the beginning, but I am actually still, even with the insurance stuff, you said you had your insurance broker and you got your money pretty quick. I guess most vineyards are types of, you know, if you're growing something that you're going to have that type of insurance or else your business is screwed if there's drought or something like that, I imagine. What are the steps for you to get your claims? Seem like it was easy. Would you have any suggestions on anyone else who has, I don't know if it's necessarily a similar type of business or what to do to make sure that if we're ready or prepared for something like this to happen in our business? You know, I tell people this all the time. So the interesting thing was actually looking at my neighborhood. So I'm going to change to kind of my neighborhood. And I'm a big believer in over-insuring. I always have been. I was raised that way because you don't have insurance for the good times. You have insurance for the bad times, right? And under-insuring yourself to save a penny today will cost you tremendous amounts down the road. So as a great example, and again, using myself personally, our house in Sonoma was not directly affected by the fires, but there was a tremendous amount of smoke and everything else. We had to clean the house. I've got young children. And so I called my insurance broker and within probably four or five days, I had an adjuster out here. They handed me a check right away for a fair amount of money and said, hey, this is a start. If you discover anything else, have a back and we'll take care of you. My neighbors who had gone and had, let's say, less high quality insurance, they fought for months to get any money out of their insurance companies. And actually two of my neighbors switched to my broker and my insurance company after the fires. So what I would say is that I've learned this through experience, find a really good insurance broker. And that means somebody that works for a large brokerage that is not aligned with one insurance company. So you don't want to go to your local State Farm agent. The problem is they only represent State Farm. You want to find a good regional broker who works with multiple companies so they can get you great rates. But equally importantly, when something goes wrong and you need, you want the 800-pound gorilla beating up the insurance company, not your small independent broker who has no leverage. So what I've learned over the years is find the really good ones, buy good insurance, and when something bad happens, they'll take care of you and they'll end up on the right side of things. If you guys haven't heard about Roan, you're really missing out. Roan is a men's performance lifestyle and premium activewear brand that is engineered for unparalleled quality and comfort. They're an absolute necessity for guys on the go. It doesn't matter if you're training in the gym or jumping on international flights. They are your new go-to men's clothing brand. My favorite part of Roan is the comfort of these new shorts that I'm wearing right now. See, Roan makes something for the modern man, regardless of the occasion. In addition to an awesome selection of premium shorts, shirts, tank tops, socks, and swimwear, Roan engineers clothing perfect for the office, long flights, and commutes. And now Roan has just released their amazing new commuter collection, perfect for looking great and staying comfortable at the office. Again, the comfort and quality of my new shorts are what I like best about Roan. And Roan's commuter collection is a performance alternative to the everyday workwear, offering everything from pants, polos, shorts, and shirts that are all lightweight, comfortable, and wrinkle-free. The commuter collection is good for all weather, anytime from a weekday in the workplace to a weekend barbecue. So go to roan.com slash millionaire today and use promo code millionaire to get 20% off your first purchase. That's roan, R-H-O-N-E dot com slash millionaire and use promo code millionaire for 20% off. One more time, roan.com slash millionaire and use promo code millionaire. 
Thank you for the tips and information there. A lot of us don't think about ever until it actually happens. Why don't we rewind back to how you even got started with this? I know you went to school, you said Tufts University. Where's that located? And can you tell us how you started becoming an entrepreneur after graduating college? I did. I went to Tufts in Boston, which is a great school. It's just outside of downtown Boston. And I was a pre-med engineer, which as you can imagine, led to a tremendous amount of free time. But I helped a friend of mine who had a small DJ business in college transition it from basically, as we like to joke, a dude in a basement with two sticks and speakers to this very large event production company that still exists today called Groove Boston. So I helped him write the business plan, grow that. We actually won the business plan competition our senior year, and he still runs that company today. And it's now a five or $6 million turnover DJ and event production company. And we identified was the opportunity that no one was addressing, which was universities were stuck either having to go very low budget for entertainment or very, very high budget. They had to pay a major named celebrity act to come in and they had to spend a tremendous amount of money on stage and speakers and everything else. So we created an intermediate experience where we would come in and set up a basically Vegas style club at the university with our DJs and they could spend 60, 70, $80,000 instead of 5,000 for a really poor experience or 250,000 for a brand name act. And what we found was the universities were craving this. The students were craving it. The experience was much more student focused and also much cheaper for the universities. And as a result, it just took off. And today, Bobby, my buddy who still runs the company, has seen just tremendous success with it. So that was my first, I guess, genuine entrepreneurial experience. I actually took I was one of the first students to go through our entrepreneurial leadership studies program at the university. And so I guess I've always had it in my blood. My parents are both entrepreneurs as well. It's just been there, but I didn't go straight into it. After school, I actually went and worked for a management consulting company called uh, Putnam Associates, which focuses on the pharmaceutical biotech spaces and spent three years, basically, I joke, getting my MBA by working on other businesses, looking at pricing models and go-to-market strategies and R&D analysis, really looking at all these different facets of the pharmaceutical and biotech industries and learning the basics of business from the inside before I moved back to the West Coast and got in the wine business. Actually, I can relate what you're talking about. I guess you call it a Groove Boston, where you're kind of doing the intermediate type of DJ experience or having those type of bands come there. Because I went to University of Florida and I agreed like they'd have these small things that would be like low budget, maybe a DJ they pay a couple thousand, or they were doing the thing where they'd sell out basically the Florida actual university football stadium, where it might be even a half a million, you know, getting Tom Petty there or whoever was playing. Yeah. So you're saying that Groove Boston thing was kind of in between. And it makes sense because that way you can make it a little bit smaller and then have kids come in who want to see certain DJs or whatever play there. Do you want to touch on that a little bit more? Because it seems kind of interesting that at least coming out, I guess you're maybe like 25, 26, you've been working another job. Did you quit the Putnam Associates job and just move right into the Groove Boston job with your friend? No, it was the other way around. I did Groove Boston in college. That's how I paid my way through college. Groove was a great company and we took it from Bobby and I and actually another guy named Jordan. By the time I stayed on the board after college, I thought about actually going and working for full-time at Groove Boston after school, but I chose not to because to be honest with you, I'm the world's worst DJ. Absolutely terrible at it. We always joked at the end of the night, if we wanted to clear the dance floor, just put <laughs> on the ones and twos and it would happen instantly. And the time electronic dance music was really coming into its own, that's just not a type of music I'm a huge fan of. So I stayed on the board and I helped them grow the company. It wasn't my passion. I think the most important thing as an entrepreneur is to realize what are you passionate about? Because if you're going to do something you believe in, because you're going to spend a tremendous amount of time and energy doing it. 
No, it makes sense. Like, what happens if you made a car washing business in college, right? But you realize you're not in love with washing cars. You could maybe have gone and done that. But if you're not passionate about it, you're not going to wake up excited every morning. So it's good that you're able to kind of figure that out. Even though you had started a business with your friends, that you're going to kind of leave that there and then go to another type of job where you gain more business experience, right? Correct. At the time, I still thought I might go back to medical school. So I decided that I wasn't ready to commit. So I took a job that was in a medical related field, had some business elements because I'd really enjoyed the entrepreneurship business side of things. So it kind of fused what I was interested in and gave me the opportunity to grow. And then to be honest, I just learned a ton and I enjoyed it, but I'm a West Coast kid from California and I just wanted to come back to the West Coast. So after three years, I quit and my best friend was moving back West as well at that time. And we packed our stuff and drove cross country. You went to Boston to go to school. You come back. Were you back in Sonoma actually when you came back to California? No, I grew up in San Francisco. So I actually moved back to San Francisco. And then I had this sort of existential debate, right? There were three things for me to do. One was to go into biotech. We've got a lot of very prominent biotech here in the Bay Area. And obviously with my career at Putnam, it was a very easy transition for me to step into a manager or director level role at a pharmaceutical company. I could go into tech because, well, everybody in the Bay Area goes into tech and a lot of my skills were transferable over there. Or I could do something totally different. And the thing that I really missed in consulting, for those people listening who don't know what a management consultant actually does, we do short-term projects for major companies that struggle to react quickly. So huge global companies and sometimes their ability to do quick analysis and pivot is limited. So they hire these outside companies who are experts to go and study a subject and then present essentially a model and a recommendation. So lots of Excel and lots of PowerPoint. And essentially we were advisors that made recommendations. The problem was we never actually did anything. We never got to execute on any of those recommendations. Unless you were there for five or 10 years watching the results, you never really got to see the impact of it. And I really missed making something tangible, you know, making something you could touch, feel. I love PowerPoint and Excel as much as the next guy, but I certainly wanted something more tactile. And so when I came back, I really thought a lot about what do I want to do that's tactile? And I also want to take some time off. I had my first job when I was 13. And I'd been working straight from 13 until at that point, 25 or 26, however old I was. And I, took, I just needed some time off. I actually took the summer off and was just trying to figure out what I want to do next. And I had lunch with a family friend who's in the wine business. And it's funny, my dad had called him before we had lunch and said, Dan, look, Jordan's going to have lunch and he's thinking about going to the wine industry. Just do one thing. Don't let him do it. And why's that? You know, I had a good job in pharmaceuticals. And as a consultant, my dad saw a career. And so funny enough, you know, two bottles of wine and a two hour lunch later, I had my first job in the wine industry. Nice. So yeah, <laughs> your dad's friend hired you then? He didn't hire me, but he connected me. So at the time he was making his wines at a, what's called a custom crush facility, which is sort of like a co-op winery. And we'd called the owner and he'd said, oh, I need a harvest intern. Yeah, Jordan, you're hired. So my first job, I took a 90% pay cut. I was making, I believe, 10 25 an hour to work manual labor at this winery, essentially cleaning and managing the winemaking process for winemakers as an intern. And I did that in 2006 from you know August through November. When you were doing that, did you have a long-term game plan? You're like, hey, I probably should take this job even at first, like you say, a 90% pay cut, which is obviously huge and going down to do this manual labor. But where before, I imagine you were in the office, like you were saying, putting together PowerPoint and Excel, right? It's a way different type of lifestyle, I guess, within three months, you know, from you moving to Boston and then coming to San Francisco. 
I would like to say I had some grand plan. I absolutely did not. I just wanted to do something different. And this was fun. It was a three month commitment. If I hated it, by the time I was done, I'd go back and go get a job at Genentech. The thing was, I loved it. I mean, I loved the work. I loved the product. I loved the people. I just absolutely fell in love with everything about the wine industry. And that really then set off the course that I've been on for the last 13 years. But it all started with really just deciding to do something that sounded fun in an area that I had some passion for, not just one thing led to another. Essentially what happens in the wine industry is when you're cutting your teeth on the production side, you bounce between the Northern and Southern hemispheres because harvests are opposite, right? When we're harvesting here, they're just starting spring in the Southern hemisphere. And then when we're in spring, they're harvesting down there. So this ability to gain double experience is very common. Right after I finished that first harvest here, I got offered a harvest position in Australia. So I headed to Australia and I made wine there. And then I did some backpacking down there. I came back to a job for two years as a production manager for a small winery here in Sonoma, and then turned around and went to Argentina and Chile to work harvest down there. And then came back and I actually had the idea for Reflow during a bottling day before I left for Argentina. So I actually wrote the business plan while I was down there you know, and then came back. Do a lot of guys in your position at that point in time end up doing that, going to the Southern Hemisphere for six months, I guess, or so, and then coming back to the Northern Hemisphere, depending on the crop? Absolutely. In the wine industry, if you are a winemaker, you want to go down the production path. It is extremely common to go back and forth between the Northern and Southern Hemisphere for a couple of years because you want to maximize your experiences, right? You want as many harvests as you can get as quickly as you can, because that's really what winemaking is all about is being in the vineyard, making pick decisions, making the wines, understanding the fermentation process. And so you want to do as much of that as quickly as possible. I guess one of the positives too, is that you don't have to ever have deal with winter. Not that you normally would in California anyways, right? Yeah. I was going to say, I, we don't have that problem where I live. I mean, I like the summer daylight time, you know, it's funny because I joke around with my wife about that. We went to Australia and it's just like we went during winter time. It's nice to have way more daylight during what would be winter normally in the States, but it's summer down there. I could see myself living that type of lifestyle, like trying to have the maximum amount of daylight, optimizing that way if you could too, you know? Absolutely. So it sounds like a good experience. I mean, can you tell us what you learned even those couple of years? Except you didn't have the grand plan after your three month internship, if you will. But as you were going over these next few years, when you're in the production side, is that when things started clicking? You're like, hey, I eventually want to open up my own winery. This is good experience. I need to learn this type of stuff. That's exactly what it was, was as I was going through it, my parents had purchased kind of their retirement home up in Sonoma and had a small vineyard on it. And I was working with them in the vineyard. I was working in the wineries. I was learning this industry from stem to stern. I was enjoying it so much. And what most people in the winemaking side do is you keep working along and some people open their own brands and other people become winemakers at prestigious brands. So I actually started making my own wine under my own label in 2007. I just made a hundred cases from my family's property. And that I didn't know anything at that point. I'd had two harvests under my belt. I was working for another winery and they let me do it as a little side project. To be honest, I still didn't have a grand plan. I said, oh, I want to make wine and I want to own my own brand. And what I realized was that I knew I didn't want to just be a winemaker for somebody else. I love winemaking, but I worried that just being a winemaker would get monotonous for me. I needed more of the challenge of business and everything else. So I always knew I'd own my own label. And then what happened was 2008, 
we were bottling for the winery that I worked for and I was running the bottling and bottling is just this miserable process. Oh, it's well, you've got all these different pieces. They'll have to come together and the bottling lines always break down and then you have labor issues and you have materials that don't show up, right? It's just not a fun process. I remember I had one of those epically terrible bottling days. I got really frustrated at some point. I stomped into the winery in wineries all over the world. You know, they have barrels, which are 60 gallons. But if you have a partially full barrel, the wine will spoil in it. So literally in every winery all over the world, there are kegs. We use those to break down the barrels. So if you have 30 gallons left, you'll put it in two 15-gallon kegs. And when you break that 15-gallon keg down, you'll put it in a five-gallon keg. So there are kegs literally in every winery. And I went and I kicked one of my topping kegs. Uh, that's what they're called. And I said, why the hell can't I just sell wine in one of these? It seems so simple. It was funny. That was where the idea spark came from. And I started thinking about it. And I said, well, you know, there's so many issues with wines by the glass and kegs could actually be a really good solution for that. That's really where the genesis of what is now free flow came from was just that bad bottling day that turned into a way to change the way people drink wine by the glass. That's amazing. That kind of came to foresight right then. But I'm guessing, could you explain, you said you went down to 10 bucks an hour when you were doing that internship. I know you were obviously making more money, but how much money were you making as improving your job skill level or where you're at to make sure that, I didn't know if you still got back up to what you were making before or if you're still taking a pay cut to learn all this stuff on someone else's dime while you're also working? Oh, no. I mean, I didn't make more money than I made as a consultant until five years later. Okay. Yeah. I think those types of things are good for people to listen and understand that even though you didn't necessarily have a huge long-term picture, you knew you want to be in the wine industry or something more interesting, but realizing that you have to take a step back or even several steps back to move forward. Was that your thought process even after a couple of years? I mean, I think a lot of people think that maybe just the very next day when you start a company, maybe you can make money right away. And maybe you can, but it seems like at least the entrepreneurs that I've talked to, it's always a few steps back, even when you're starting your first company or taking a step back to learn more about an industry like you did. I don't know an entrepreneur that doesn't take a substantive pay cut when they start. So that's the other thing too, right? So entrepreneurs, we struggle with two things. The first is we work a lot. We often don't make money to start. And two is if you have a family or you're starting a family, it is a very challenging thing to do as an entrepreneur. And a little later, we'll talk about some of the choices I'm making now in my life to impact all of that. But let's go back to the beginning. I don't know an entrepreneur that hasn't taken a substantive pay cut for an extended period of time. I was actually counseling a friend of mine who's an entrepreneur. He is seven years into their business and he's still making less than $50,000 a year running what to the outside people looks like a nice, successful little business. From the outside, it can always look good, but then it's also like, okay, living day to day and taking these cuts. Yeah. Talk even more about that if you can. When I was cutting my teeth as an assistant winemaker, which is what I was doing, learning the trade, I was actually bartending two nights a week to make enough money to pay rent. Well, yeah, you lived in San Francisco too, right? Correct. I was living in San Francisco at the time, yep. And commuting to Sonoma four days a week, except during harvest where I'd actually sleep on my parents' sofa because the commute was too long. Or if I had a girlfriend at the time, stay at their place. That's what I had to do. But I was learning. I was loving what I was doing and I was making it work. So what happened was I had a substantive disagreement with the winery I was working for about both my compensation and where their business was going. Grant to say they hired my intern and went bankrupt a year later. I got offered this job in Argentina and I turned to my girlfriend at the time, who I'd been dating for about nine months. And I said, hey, this is going really well. You're planning on changing careers. You speak Spanish. I don't. Why don't we move to South America together and take this job? And she thought about it and decided to. And for all those listeners who were wondering, yes, that woman is now my wife. And so we ended up packing our bags and moving to Argentina. That job was actually non-paying. They gave us room and board and paid for the flight. 
but I actually took a four month stint down there for no money. I mean, we didn't spend a penny while we were there. They took care of everything for us, but it was an amazing learning experience and an amazing bonding experience with my wife. We were dating, we weren't living together. We were living in San Francisco, you know, as young, that point, singlish people. And then we moved to rural Argentina. We were living an hour and a half south of Mendoza in the Uco Valley the base of the Andes in a 200 acre vineyard in a little cottage all by ourselves. We we're living in this little cottage. It was about a 10 minute walk through the vineyards to the winery. The nearest town, La Consulta, was 2000 people. It was a 15 minute car ride away and we didn't have a car. But yeah, we were in this little two bedroom cottage and we had constant house guests. So it was where they put up people staying. So we at one point had two 18 year old gap year boys who worked at the winery for three weeks that lived with us. At another point, we had a 30-year-old winemaker in the Catalina Islands who stayed for three weeks making wine alongside of us. It was a really amazing experience, and uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. And obviously, both from a personal perspective, you know, what it did for my relationship with my wife, and then also from education. It was amazing to learn in a whole other country how they do things, informed a lot of the experiences, and I also wrote the business plan for free flow while I was there. It was a great time. So how did you even end up finding that job? finding the job in Argentina. You said it's kind of very remote. It's not like it was in a big city, it sounded like. It seems kind of weird that you're able to find that and go down there and sell your wife to come with you. I was in a, actually, and she was doing tours at the winery uh, while I was there, but I was actually at a wine tasting in San Francisco and I met the owner. He was up here selling his wines. We just hit it off and I said, hey, I've been thinking about coming down there. And he said, oh, I'd love to host you. I can't pay you, but here's what I can do. And it literally was a conversation over two or three weeks. And then I had to decide if I wanted to do it. And I just said, what the heck? Let's do it. You put together your business plan while you're down there for free flow wines, you said? Yeah. I mean, I put together the initial ideas and plans, which turned out to be nothing like the actual business. Yeah. That's what I was about to ask next. Go ahead. Yeah. Tell us about that. How much of that plan did I actually execute on? How about uh, 5%? The original idea was I'd come back and I'd start this wine brand and we would sell premium wine and kegs. So I came back and funny enough, I knew very little about the sales side of the industry. I only knew the production side. So the guy, that same guy I had lunch with three years earlier, I called him and I said, hey, let's get lunch again. And instead of us talking about whether or not I'd have a job, he was running his own brand and had been in sales in the wine industry for 10 years. I said, hey, Dan, I've got this crazy idea. You want to be my partner and let's start this wine on tap company. And he told me I was nuts and we kept talking about it. And eventually I convinced him to come and join me. So we started the company together in 2009. We actually had a third partner. He didn't last very long, but the three of us started what was then free flow and we each put in $10,000 and we just started, we bought some wine from a buddy who had made it and we bought some used beer kegs. We cleaned them by hand and filled them by hand and went and found two restaurants that were willing to install some taps and try it. And uh, we were literally delivering them out of his garage in San Francisco to these two restaurants as we were trying to figure out what the business plan really looked like. And we quickly realized that Free Flow was a terrible name for a wine brand. So we branded as Silvertap Wines. And then we started growing and we actually raised some angel investment. And so that was 2009, it was July, 2009. We raised some angel investment in March of 2010 and started growing the Silvertap brand nationally. It's still called Free Flow Wines today. That's your overall brand, but you're saying like Silvertap Wines was what you needed to call it in there because it sounded much better. Correct. We realized two things. One, free flow wines made people think it was a never-ending glass or it was free. And restaurants didn't really like that. 
And this, you got to remember at this point, no one's ever had wine on tap before. This is brand new. Most people don't remember wine on tap from, you know, 20 years earlier. So we needed something that people could wrap their arms around. And so we did some brand exercising, naming exercises, and we came up with Silver Tap because it was really what tied people to what they were, the experience they were having. And, you know, retrospectively, we probably should have been more innovative in our name, but that was what we did at the time and it worked. Well, it sounds good to me too, I was going to say, because then yeah. you can remember, okay, where did this wine come from a silver tap? Okay, it's because of a keg, right? Correct. It makes sense to me. So I think it was a good name change to go that. Because even free flow wine, I keep thinking, I'm like, okay, my wife and her friends would be up there just all night, right? Just because they think it's free. You know, it kind of has that naming convention, if you will, versus silver tap wine has a different naming convention. I can remember where I got it from. Correct. That's really the genesis of it was to make it something that consumers could resonate with more. And it worked. So we went from little California, we bought more kegs, bought more wine, and we grew from one state to 10 states. We started growing business, started growing more of the restaurants, and, and things were going well. Dan was running sales and I was running operations, and we just kept growing. And how old were you when you started it? 27. Okay. So that must have felt pretty good too, because I imagine maybe you had some pushback from family members or friends who were wondering what the hell you were doing when you took those $10 an hour jobs. I mean, were you super excited? I imagine like starting off the company and trying to prove them, Hey, I did make the right decision. I've never been motivated, honestly, by other people. I'm a self-motivated person. For me, you know, the funny thing is I never even thought about it that way. And to be honest with you, I never imagined that that company we started, you know, I had those ridiculous, lofty, new entrepreneur dreams where we'd be doing 50 million in three years and I'd sell the company and I'd be retired on a beach somewhere. Well, not very good at that, but hypothetically speaking, we started without a really clear game plan, just an idea and a hope. And then the company has morphed and changed substantially since then. Even over those first couple of years, it sounded like everything went pretty well. I mean, as well as one can expect for right doing something totally new. We had production scale problems. We had some problems with products spoiling in the market. We had issues with the dispense equipment not being available or not being the right type. And there were tremendous learning lessons, but even with all of that, we kept growing. We kept learning. We raised some more money. Things were looking good. And what was fundamental was in 2012. So, you know, we're two years in now. I realized something. I said, well, we're out there basically as what's the word I'm looking for as the evangelists of this wine on tap movement, we were helping tons of restaurants open up. And then what started to happen was they said, great, well, we love wine on tap, but we need more than silver tap. We need more brands. And at the same time, the wineries were coming to us saying, we don't know anything about kegs. Can you help us? And the light bulb went off for me. And I said, two important things. One, as you know, by anyone listening knows, when you walk into a grocery store, the last thing we need is another wine brand. There are so many wine brands. And two, as we looked at these restaurants, when they went from putting two taps in to eight taps in, and our brand might get one of them, but we were doing all the heavy lifting to get the taps in, there's got to be a better way to do this. And so we started what is now Free Flow, which was the packaging and logistics arm that helped wineries get their wines into keg and manage them throughout the distribution network. What I realized was one, we made much better margins because we weren't competing against the other brands. You know, we owned our own business and we basically built a moat around what we did. And two, in every one of those taps, we would get seven out of eight taps instead of one out of eight taps because all of our customers jockeying for a position as opposed to just us as a standalone brand. 
in 2012, we started doing what's now free flow, which is this packaging and logistics for other wineries. And by 2013, I came to my board, you know, our investors and said, look, I don't think the brand is the way to go. I think we should sell it. I think we should focus and double down on the free flow business. And they agreed. So we sold the brand in 2013 and we focused on this packaging and logistics company that's now known as free flow. This was in your original business plan that you made up? <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> right. No, this was all adjusting to what was happening in the market and what was real. Yeah. So I think that's important again, is to understand like you could have been so zoned in that I want to have Jordan's brand of wine. I want to just make this brand, but you're open to the idea of, Hey, if we're doing this much work to get it in and they finally get in, it makes sense from the restaurant standpoint too, right? Why would they just want one tap with one thing of wine? You'd want to have at least several varieties, it sounds like. And so being open-minded to that and figuring that out. And you're saying, what was the margin like before when you're just doing your own wine versus the margin when you're trying to do it for become the, I guess, maybe the distributor of these other wines? Yeah. So we were running gross margins in the high 20s, low 30s as our own brand with tremendous then sales costs underneath that, right? Tons of travel, sales and travel entertainment, all that kind of stuff. Where the packaging business, logistics business was running margins in the 50 point, gross margin in the 50 point range. And then we had a lot of capital expenditures, but not a lot of operating costs. Well, I was going to say with that, even kind of bringing it full circle, even in the beginning when we were talking about risk and insurance, it seems like there's a lot less risk for you when you're not only doing your only bottled wine, but now you're doing these other people. Like you said, there's more capital outlay, I guess, maybe in the beginning, but you don't have to worry about if you're making your own wine, if something did go wrong, all the different issues that you could have by having all these other people be in there and being the distributor or logistics guy, it seems like it'd be way less risk for your company. Correct. And I think that at the end of the day, that's what we, what I saw and what I convinced my investors to do. And so that's been the big pivot. And I will tell you, it still came with tons of risk. As you can imagine, kegs are expensive. They're about a hundred bucks each. And we own 200,000 of them right now. And they're deployed all over the country. Making sure they come home. We don't have to buy $5 million worth of kegs every year. So how do we finance all of that has been a really interesting learning experience. I would say I've probably done 90% of the things wrong in building this business. If I could go back and do it all over again with all the knowledge I have today, I would have done things tremendously differently, but we're still here. The company is now doing very well, is poised to continue succeeding, but it's cost me a tremendous amount, both in terms of time and treasure to get here because we have investors and have had to take on additional investment over the years in order to continue to scale. I definitely don't own anywhere near what I used to of the company. I and mean, that's all part of the entrepreneurial experience. If you're going to raise outside money, you have to be very judicious and thoughtful about how you do that. And I think, and I'm sure you've heard this from other entrepreneurs you've talked to, that especially at first companies, a lot of people do it wrong and it costs them a tremendous amount of equity in the process. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially for small businesses. You don't have the time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. And old school payroll providers just aren't built for the way you work today. Gusto is here to change all that. They're making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. In fact, 9 out of 10 customers say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll solutions. Gusto also saves you time. 72% of customers spend less than five minutes to run payroll. Don't believe all the good things you're hearing about Gusto? Well, just Google them. People love Gusto. And how often do you actually hear someone say they love their payroll provider? 
So to help support the show, go to gusto.com forward slash millionaire. They're offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. You'll get three months free once you do your first payroll. And again, the link is gusto.com forward slash millionaire. Need a new logo for your current or future business? Well, BrandCrowd is an awesome logo maker tool that can help you make an amazing logo design online. If you're an entrepreneur, startup founder, innovator, thought leader, or basically anyone who owns a business, well, BrandCrowd is a fantastic and easy way to get a logo. BrandCrowd takes your business name and industry and generates thousands of logos in seconds. BrandCrowd uses high quality handcrafted designs created by designers from around the world to create custom logos just for you. Once BrandCrowd generates a logo you like, you can edit and tweak the logo, changing fonts and colors until it is perfect for you. One of the best things about BrandCrowd is it's free to get started and begin generating logos. Plus, it's super easy to use. Once you're happy with your logo, you can download all the files you need to start your business. If you don't like any of the designs, no problem. You don't have to pay. So to find out more about BrandCrowd, go check out brandcrowd.com forward slash maker. That's B-R-A-N-D-C-R-O-W-D.com forward slash maker. But it's give and take, right? You don't know what you don't know. And then you started at a pretty young age. You're still a young guy. If you really wanted to redo it again, it sounds like you'd have some ideas that you could do. But again, you've made it successful up to this point. So I think most people would be super satisfied to be in your shoes where you've made a business this successful, even if you don't own a majority of the equity or even a minority at this point. But you said there's a lot of things that you might do differently. Can you name maybe a couple that maybe we could use in our business if we were to do it over again, what we could do hopefully on our first time? Absolutely. So some important things I would consider. One, respect the value of capital. Be judicious early on about where and how you spend your money. Think really hard. Is this worth it? Because I tell young entrepreneurs this all the time. I say the most valuable thing you have is equity. And every time you spend a dollar that you don't need to spend, if you have to replace that dollar with new equity, it's very, very expensive. Two is be careful in who you pick for partners. I'm sure that many of the other entrepreneurs you've talked to have had challenging partnerships and sometimes they end well and sometimes they end poorly. So make sure you're very judicious in the people that you choose to become partners with. I've learned that through multiple bad choices over the years. And then I would say, never give up. We've been through some incredibly challenging times over the last 10 years. And I was talking to a friend about it. They said, Jordan, why didn't you just walk away? And I said, because I believed, I believed in what we were doing. And I believed in myself that will carry you. If you fundamentally believe that no matter what obstacle you come up against, you can get to the other side. I'm not saying you always will, but if you can maintain that mentality, the chances of getting to the other side are much greater because human perseverance is incredible. And if you have a good idea and a good business, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. It just may be a very long tunnel to get there. I think a lot of us is just like, it takes a lot longer to get to the end than you think. But again, the 10 year overnight success. <laughs> exactly. Like you said, the perseverance, you've got to keep the mindset. If you lose the mindset and your belief, then you're totally screwed, right? Correct. And that I think is where people, they start second guessing themselves in their business, not in the good way, right? I second guessed the business and we pivoted and it was a great decision, but second guessing the decision to do it, to pursue it, whether the whole business model is real. As soon as that gets in your head, then when happens is you lose commitment. 
And that's a really challenging place to be. So the way I think about it is you just put your head down and persevere. You might fail and that's okay, but hopefully you succeed. Like you're saying, it makes sense to look in other options if everything's not working as well as it could. And like you said, like how you pivoted, but you didn't just like, give up, right? Because it was so hard to go into these different restaurants or wherever where you're putting a wine on tap. They're like, hey, we need multiple wines on tap. Maybe some people might have just given up. They're like, hey, it's not worth it. I need to get multiple wines. But they wouldn't have been open-minded enough to like, hey, why don't I reshape my business model? Think about this differently. And then it's going to be easier overall to sell them on your wine and other potential wines that could be on tap, right? Absolutely. Looking back, I mean, how about personally or your lifestyle as far as family and dealing with that? Because it sounds like a lot of this you were doing, you were still single or, you know, had your wife as your girlfriend at that point in time. Tell us about growing a business with family and dealing with that. Divorce rates among entrepreneurs are the highest of any category. And that's because you essentially have two partners. You have your partner, human partner, and then you have a partner in your business that you are equally and sometimes more invested in depending on the person. That challenge, that dynamic is really hard. And so when I went on this path, you know, wife and I were dating. And when we decided to get married, I looked at her and I said, I'm going to make you a promise right now that I will not become that entrepreneur that that happens to, but you have to make me an equal promise that if I'm going down that path, you have to call me on it. You can't let it get to the point where it's irreparable. You have to also be part of this and a partner in this. And she said, absolutely. And so we've worked really hard at it. And now we have two young kids. And one of the big decisions was four years ago when our son after our son was born, we were still living in San Francisco and I was commuting up to the wine country every day. So I was spending two plus hours a day in the car commuting. And I looked at her and I said, I can't be the dad and the husband I need to be if I'm going to work 10 or 11 hours a day and add two plus hours of commuting. So can we move up to wine country? You know, she had been raised in Denver and lived in cities her whole life. And the idea of moving to a town of 10,000 people was, shall we say, less than appealing. <laughs> right. But she recognized that that was important for us to do what we needed in our life. And she's a nurse now. She's a nurse practitioner. And you know her job was transferable reasonably easily. And so we did it. But those are the important things where you realize like you have to make decisions and both people have to be willing to make sacrifices in order to make it work. And you know we both work. She was going through school a lot of the time we were starting up and we had very little money, but we were very thoughtful. We were able to buy a house early on and you know we made a really great decision there. And then when we sold that, we moved up here. And you can imagine buying a house in San Francisco is not very easy. Right. But we cobbled together the down payment and then we did some renovations that we knew were critical. We got a great deal on the house. We actually bought it with my brother. So my brother, my wife, and I bought a little duplex together because that was the only way all of us could afford to buy something. We ended up doing very well when we sold it and moved up here. We actually just sold the house I'm sitting in right now and we're moving to another one. And we've done very well with real estate along on the side as we've been just thoughtful and judicious about where we spend our money. And now got two great kids and we both work full-time and we have full-time help because it's the only way I think you can survive it. And we make the time. And you know, I say there are five things in your life you can do, right? So you've got work, you've got your relationship, right? Or your family, let's call it. You've got your friends, you've got your health and you've got your sleep. Those are the five things in your life, right? That pretty much everything falls into one of those buckets. The problem is, is that when you're an entrepreneur, you generally can only do three of them. And so you have to make a conscious choice, right? What are the things that you're going to give up? So in my case, for the last 10 years, it's been giving up a tremendous amount of social, right? My friends, I don't see a ton of them. I see more now with kids because we all have kids now and that creates social interaction. 
and sleep. I just sleep less than I used to. We were joking this morning. I mean, I've been up since four, my time. It's okay. I manage it. It works. But the most important things to me are my family and my work. And I'm trying to spend more time on my health. I'm learning how to trade sleep for health and find a happy balance there. So I stay fit because I want to be around for a while. But these are all the things. And I think people, they look at entrepreneurs and they look at people who own their business and they go, oh, it's so easy and amazing. And, and this is what they do. And the reality is most of us, and because I grew up with it, my parents being both entrepreneurs, it's never easy. And at some point, hopefully you reach a level of financial success that allows you to have forward some of the flexibility that you've always desired or freedom that you've always desired. I've said my goal is never to retire. My goal is to work because I want to, not because I have to. Yeah. And even the opportunity that you're saying, like maybe you moved up to Sonoma Valley, but you know, maybe five, 10 years from now, I think a lot of the entrepreneurs I talk to aren't good at relaxing per se, but maybe you have the opportunity to move down back to San Francisco and you work less hours, maybe work 20 or 30 hours. You've got that set and you want to go do other things. So I think just the freedom is what a lot of people seek who listen to this podcast, right? The ability to it thinks about some sacrifices you have to make at some point, but hopefully in the long run, having it pay off. Exactly. You know, the truth is actually, it's funny you say that because I'm actually going through that transition right now. So I actually announced about a month ago to my company and to my board that I'm actually going to step down from my full-time role at the company and go do some other things with my life. You know, I've been running this company for 10 years. I've grown it. We're profitable. Things are really good. I said, look, the next three years, we're going to continue scaling. We have a great management team in place. I'd like to move from day-to-day -day executive into a board role. I've been on the board the whole time, but into a just a board role. And so actually August 2nd is my last day as a full-time employee. I'm doing exactly that. I happen to own two other companies. You know, the winery that I started actually before FreeFlow has managed to continue growing and succeeding despite me paying very little attention to it over the last 10 years. And then I actually co-founded a canned wine brand. I told you we got free flow, got into canning, but again, as a co-packer, I actually started a canned wine brand called Essentially Geared or more affectionately EG. That's been on absolute fire. And so the CEO of that company, who's my business partner, is trying to manage that scale. And I've helped guide them through how we preserve equity and how we grow and how we be judicious and all that. But now as the company company enters rapid scale, you know, they would really benefit from more involvement by me because I've been through it. And as you said, I can take that 10 years of experience and apply it so that hopefully we only make 10% of the mistakes that I made the first time around with the goal that Grant and I, Grant being my partner, end up holding a lot more equity at the end of the day and having a very successful business. So those are the decisions that we make throughout the course of our lives. And it's to rebalance all of those priorities and do what's important to me. It's like I'm a mind reader figuring that out, right? You know, maybe you're just getting bored per se, maybe with just doing the free flow wines and you have these other businesses that you want the opportunity to go explore them. Just new things for me, like personally, when I'm learning new things, it keeps me even more motivated and keeps me going. Yeah, I think that's important that you have that flexibility to be able to do that, to move more of your time into a different business if you want. Correct. And equally importantly, you know, as businesses get bigger, your role changes from doing to managing. And I am excited to roll up my sleeves and do things again, as opposed to spending the vast majority of every day managing things. And that's just my entrepreneurial nature. I'm a builder by nature. So I'm excited to get back in and build again. Looking back on your story, I'm glad you did mention, I did not know about the divorce rates, but it is kind of alarming the amount of people that I talked to that divorce is happening, right? Or it has happened once or multiple times. Yep. And that's something that I'm definitely going to look on. But I think I've learned through these experiences, making sure that I don't get too far from too out of line where I'm working. Because I've done that before, but 
but I was like single. So it didn't really matter, you know, so I didn't care. But when you have family, then it's adding a whole nother time element that you need to put into. So I think anyone talking to their partner and kind of saying that, like you want to do it as best as you can, but sometimes you can't even realize it when you're in the thick of things. Telling your partner, hey, if you start noticing that I'm doing that, instead of building up all this built up resentment where you're angry at me about it, like, let me know. We can figure it out before it gets too far from center, I guess, if you will. Correct, which I think at the end of the day, but that's just good, healthy, open communication. And you should have that same thing with your business partners. Good, healthy, open communication with those people who you are tied to. You made a commitment and you make a commitment to your business partners. You make a commitment to your life partner. Those are commitments. And that requires the kind of constant flow of information back and forth to make sure that there's still alignment. And look, there are times where there's not. And we had that with one of our business partners. I know friends that have had that in their marriages. But if you have the open dialogue about it, the net result is a more amicable solution, whether it's staying together and things are good or something that has to go a different direction, be it in business or personally. But that's just mission critical. Yeah. And just because you say it once too, is not really a good enough excuse, right? If you just told your wife that once, I think after you get married, it's like, you might want to like make sure whoever's listening, you reevaluate that and say that every six months or a year. Oh yeah. Cause you're like, oh, well, I asked you. And they're like, again, just being open on both ends to reestablishing that to make sure again, we don't get off centered with too much in work. What, which is what led to the decision to leave free flow was an ongoing dialogue with my family about what we wanted and priorities and all of that. It confluence of timing and opportunity and priorities all came together and the decision was made. Thank you for letting us behind the curtains of your personal life and your business life and trying to understand how you grew your business to where it's at today. But if you're looking back, is there any last words of wisdom or any last thing that you want to leave everybody with who's listening? Well, I would say that if you have a passion and you have the desire, starting your own business and building your own business is one of the most rewarding things you can possibly do. But you got to know, you got to go into it open-eyed. I encourage the people who want to do it. I talk to young entrepreneurs all the time and I love the passion and the energy and enthusiasm. And I always try to coach them. I say, look, this is going to be 10 times harder than you think it's going to be. And you think it's going to be pretty hard. But at the end of the day, there's nothing more powerful than looking at something incredible that you've built and realizing, you know, you through your initiative and gumption and hard work built something meaningful. I remember, you know, when I announced that I was leaving, I had all my employees and we're in this giant production facility here in Sonoma that we built. I'm looking around and I said, look, you guys are my greatest professional accomplishment. That's an amazing sense of pride and accomplishment that comes from that. And so if you're willing to go for it and also know that nine out of 10 of us will fail and there's nothing wrong with a failure or two. I mean, joke, people always say, oh, they like to invest in entrepreneurs that have failed once or twice because they have a ton of learning and experience. So, you know, it's just an interesting way to do it. And if someone would reach and say, thank you for doing the interview, how would they do that? Is it best through email or social media or just let us know how they can reach you? I'm personally not a big social media guy, but if people wanted to reach out, I'll give you an email that they're welcome to reach out to me. So it's uh, Jordan at, and I'll spell it, K-I-V-E-L-S-T-A-D-T-C-E-L-L-A-R-S.com. Kibblestad Sellers, that's my winery. As I said, since I uh, after August 2nd, I won't be as a full-time employee at FreeFlow. It's probably better to get me on the email of the winery. My FreeFlow emails will still work and everything else, but that's my personal, my winery. Yeah, we'll have that contact info and in episode notes too, if anyone like scrolls down. Because yeah, I was not going to try to pronounce your last name. <laughs> I'm like, dude, yeah, you just spelled it out, which I'm glad you did. So everyone can see how hard it is. Like, how do you say your last name again? It's Kibblestat. You know, it's funny. It's phonetic. It reads exactly as it looks. Well, thank you again, Jordan, for coming on. And we can hear the family time of waking up right now and getting after it. 
the two-year-old just got up. So uh, I've got a jet. <laughs> well, but perfect look, timing. Yeah, perfect timing. Austin, thanks for the time and look forward to seeing this when it's uh, all wrapped up. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jordan. Uh, I guess, yeah, you remember what we, what I said was going to happen, man, if we didn't reach our Patreon goal? Yeah, you're going to have to let my wife go? Is that it? Yeah, I mean, we're just like under break even right now, and that's without me paying myself. So unless we get like five more Patreon members or so over the next two weeks, then uh, we're going to have to make cuts, man. I'm sorry. Oh, I guess this is a bad time to tell you that I just found out that, you know, Quinn is pregnant.